Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. I'm Josie Wales. I have heard. You're the Grey Rider. You would not make peace with the Blue Coats. You may go in peace. It ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living, it's hard. And all you've ever cared about has been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together, people live together. Governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. The bear lives here. The wolf, the antelope. And I'm saying that men can live together without butchering one another. It's said that governments are chiefed by the double tongues. There is iron in your words of death for all to see. And so there is iron in your words of life. No signed paper can hold the iron. It must come from men. The words of ten bears carries the same iron of life and death. It is good that warriors such as we meet in the struggle of life or death that shall be life. Hello out there. Peabody and Sherman here. Set the way back machine. We enter the way back and we're immediately hurtled back through time and space. Hi, this is Ray Stevens and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So, turn your radio on. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Town, talk1340.com, and you can see us live in the studio in downtown Clearwater. Not really, but maybe. Anyway, uh, don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com. You can uh, find out all about us. And if you miss any of our past shows, 600 and some odd shows, right, Bobby? Um, go to our archive page. Go to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you can uh, listen to all our past shows. Good evening, Bobby. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, and I'd say that was a good assessment of the sh- number of shows. I think we're going to be 627, 8. So I'll check later. All right, something like that. But anyway, we got an exciting show for you tonight. Uh, who's, tonight. Counting, who's counting after uh, after 600, right? Well, that's true. It's like 12 years. It, that's in, just considered success. Success after. <laughs> that's exactly right. So anyway, um, all right, so I'm at a undisclosed location, so if you Turning up the rocks out in the yard, you'll you'll find them. I'll find them. They'll, they'll find me anyway. But we get an exciting show, so we're going to go back. Uh, you know, we do this from time to time. We go between car guys and we go back to musicians, and uh, we got a uh, a very well known, prominent musician coming on our show this evening. So we're looking forward to that. He's also a native of Florida, even though he spent much of his time, much of his life in uh, at Nashville recording, and he's got some super, super songs and a super legacy. So uh, we're delighted to have him on the show. As a matter of fact, what we probably should do. Since we're getting close to that point, we probably should call him here in a few minutes. But um, so uh, the the nostalgic radio and cars 
uh, calendar consists of, uh, let's see, SEMA's coming up in a couple weeks, a um, couple weeks, in a month or so. But there's all kinds of other car shows. Chattanooga um, uh, Motor Fest, Motocar Festival is coming up, and that should be kind of interesting. I've never been to that, but I'm kind of got that penciled in. There's uh, the M1 Concourse. That's at the end of the month. That's in Detroit. Um, that is a real, 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 real exciting show. And, uh, and I think that's only been out a year or so. Um, at Laguna Seca, I think this weekend, they've got IndyCars, and where we were out there a couple of weeks ago at Monterey, for the Monterey Collector Car Week. So a lot of exciting stuff. Um, then, of course, we have the Palm Beach Concourse coming up. And then we have the motor car cavalcade also coming up. But that's all between the end, between now and the end of the year. Um, there's a lot of other little events in between them. We'll kind of bring you up to speed on some of those. Um, we've decided that probably what we should do is check out some of the events that are taking place in Florida. Because Florida does have a lot of really cool cars stashed away. And uh, surprisingly, you just you don't know about them until you kind of go to like a small little car show or a gathering or something like that. And I went to a little British car show thing the other day, and there were some pretty cool cars there, you know. Um, but anyway, Bobby, why don't you go ahead and fire up the stereo, and let's go ahead and get our guest on the show, and uh, let's uh, entertain our listeners. Your what do you say to salt, that? Saltwater Cowboy? Is that How about a little Saltwater Cowboy by Billy Dean? Now, Billy Dean is a Grammy Award-winning musician and, uh, and singer-songwriter, and we're delighted to have him on our show here in a few minutes. So stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Well, I traded my horse and my saddle. For a boat and paddle And I'll be buzzing on the beach by three And just Jimmy Buffett and me Thought what a cowboy The salt what a cowboy No more ass into the cattle I'd rather hear my tackle rattle With the tattoos and ten lines On the Gulf Coast Smiling, I ain't never gonna leave this island. You tell my boss up in Tennessee, he ain't never gonna find me. Saltwater cowboy.
We're back. Oh, okay. We're well, back. Uh, we're back. We're back. We're back. Okay. So now I guess I got to keep yakking here for a minute or two. Yeah, slow yakking. Okay. So uh, at any rate, so uh, one of the things that I wanted to kind of, I need to really finish up last time I started talking, um, was the uh, Monterey Collective Car Week. And, um, you know, the, the thing that really is um, just amazing about that event is just, like I said, everybody on the planet just shows up there. We were, and you know, it's funny because uh, we were at um, the Concorso Italiano, and I had just walked in there, and uh, what was really cool is the, the first cars that you saw were Lamborghinis. And uh, so, you know, and I, obviously, if you ever look at my business card, there's a picture of a uh, Lamborghini 350 GT on it, which is a car that I've always admired. And uh, as I was strolling through there, I ran into my good friend, Jim Kaminsky, who happens to be from St. Petersburg, by the way, who actually owns a uh, 68 uh, Lamborghini Isolero, which Isolero was like the successor to the, uh, the um, Lamborghini GT350. And uh, so... We're talking for a while, and this thing was just a stunning color. What I did not know, in fact, my friend Alan, who's probably listening to the show, uh, there was a, now correct me if I'm wrong, I know Alan's probably listening, and it's not a, well, maybe it's called the Isolero GT, maybe, I'm not sure, um, but it's basically on the same chassis as Lamborghini 350 GT, but it's just a completely revamped body stop, and, and it is a true four-passenger car. Um, well, if you want to call it a four-passenger car, the 350 GT really wasn't designed. It was more of a two-seater with two jump seats in the back, and then they changed the back a little bit and reconfigured the rear, the back glass, so they made it a little bit smaller, changed the trunk area a little bit, and they made it kind of a what they call a two-plus-two. It's kind of like Jaguar. Jaguar, the E-Type, you know, there's the, which the E-Type Coupe is a beautiful car with beautiful lines, and then, they, for some strange reason, I don't know why they did it, but I think it was late 60s, might have been late 67, but for sure around 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 3, and 4, they came out with the 2 plus 2. So basically, the 2 plus 2 had, um, instead of, well, for all practical purposes, two jump seats in the back, but they call it a four-seater, 2 plus 2, guess 2 in the front, 2 in the rear. And uh, they extended the headliner. The head, the the roof line, and they really just totally distorted the front of the car. But uh, oh, I just got a notice here. We got our uh, our guest on the line. Okay, well, you know what? I think it's time to go ahead and introduce him. This gentleman is uh, well. He sold five million albums worldwide. He's got eleven top singles, five number one hits, a Grammy. To his credit, he is also an inductee to the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. Delighted to welcome to the show this evening. Country superstar Billy Dean. Billy, how are you this evening? <laughs> hey, man, I'm doing great. Thank you for that great introduction, buddy. I appreciate it. Did I leave out something? Did I? Did I? Did I hit it all? You know, you you got to be an old old fart to have done all of that. Well, no, wait a minute. You're younger than me, so uh, you know I'm. Uh, <laughs> and you've accomplished quite a bit. I mean, you have just really, you know, rock and roll legend there, or uh, uh, country roll, rock and roll. Legend. Well, wait a minute. Now, what, uh, this latest song we just played it a few minutes ago, uh, "Saltwater Cowboy," and I was listening to another interview, and I can't remember who else I interviewed a while back, and the term "trop rock" came up, and then I heard in an interview that you did. I also heard you refer to 
trop rock. So for the, for the sake of, I don't know, and our listeners probably also wondering, what is trop rock music? Well, I think it's kind of a term that uh, it's sort of Florida's own musical identity that was kind of been created by the local musicians, the guys you go out and and hear playing on the on the back decks of the you know the beach bars around the coast of Florida. Uh, guys have been doing it for years and years, and uh, and I was kind of one of those guys before I ever went up to Nashville to sing country music, and of course. Uh, when the 90s came along, uh, the 90s generation of country music was was really heavily influenced by, I could say, you could say sort of the soft rock of the 70s, you know, the Eagles, the James Taylors, you know, the Billy Joels, you know, Garth Brooks was a big Billy Joel fan. I was a big James Taylor fan, along with a lot of the traditional country influences that we had, but um, you know, it was kind of, but North Florida, actually all of Florida is a, is a really a you know, a petri dish of, of different kinds of musical influences. And it uh, it's a kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, that, that kind of comes up with this all tropical flavor they call trop rock. And I had just discovered it about a few months ago, or I guess about a year ago now, uh, that this was a movement that was kind of happening in, in Florida that I, you know, learned about when I moved back home about four years ago. Well, Kenny Chesney did a song, and then of course uh, Alan Jackson with Jimmy Buffett. You know, they kind of kind of got into that a little bit. And now you got your song, and it's a real catchy tune, by the way. And I'm looking at the backdrop now. I know you're from Quincy, Florida, and which is not too far from Tallahassee, so our listeners kind of know where that is. And I've been through Quincy on my way up to uh, uh, um, uh, Alabama many times, which I go up there because I cut through. Uh, Chattahoochee, because there's a nice bridge there and on the water, and you know there's been a number of songs written about Chattahoochee, and uh, so now the backdrop looks like, and I understand it's is that is St. George Island because that's just south of Tallahassee there, right? That is, that's uh, St. George Island. Uh, it's a I grew up about an hour and a half Quincy there. You mentioned, uh, and I used to play some of the bars there in Tallahassee, Florida, and after they would close down, you know, two a.m. or so. Uh, I would usually ride down to St. George Island, watch the sun come up, and kind of my, you know, my routine. Um, you're not ready to go to bed, obviously, at 2 a.m. You know, you're on a night schedule, and I just always had fallen in love with the island. I always thought that I would, you know, the really the height of my my uh, my ambition was to just play music so I could hang out down on the island, you know. And it, it took about a 30 year detour in Nashville to do that, but uh, but here I. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, my wife was going to FSU between 80 and 82, and I used to go up and visit her all the time. We used to go to some of the local uh, places up there, you know, bars and lounges and stuff. Where, did you play back in Tallahassee back in the uh, early 80s? I did. I played at a bar called uh, Rockies, which was located there at the Tallahassee Mall, and I don't even think the building's there anymore. Uh, yeah, man, the guy, uh, <laughs> I remember him paying me. You know, after a Saturday night, man, he he'd pull up his his pant leg, and there would be a a, a wad of hundred dollar bills in one boot and a, and a pistol in the other. <laughs> <laughs> now wait a minute. Now, do you have any of the stories? Because I used to, you know, we've had a lot of rock and roll guys, on, and we used to hear how, you know, back in the day when they were young and up and coming. I mean, they were just getting, uh, you know, just 
abused left and right, so to speak. You know, they weren't getting paid and they were getting, you know, jacked around a little bit. Did you ever have to go through any of that stuff? Or were you pretty, I mean, you're a tall guy, so you're pretty intimidating to begin with, right? <laughs> right, right. No, we, we, uh, we, we had a pretty good little circuit going, man. I, I have to say, uh, the only time it ever got a little crazy, we pl- it was actually a place in Alabama that, uh, actually the group Alabama, uh, was one of their, their places that they played on their on their rise to fame. It was just a little bar, not even really that little, but it was a it was a kind of a dive bar, you know. But but Alabama is such a great band and had a big following, and uh, somehow we got booked in there. And I just remember we did such a you know I, I was living in Nashville and we were still making a living, you know, just you know touring bars down in the Panhandle, of Florida in Alabama area. And, uh, this guy loved us so much. He said, you you guys are the, you're the best thing since, uh, since, you know, Randy Owen in Alabama came in and I want to book you in here, you know, every Saturday. And we were like, well, <laughs> we, we couldn't do that because we were, you know, we we're kind of on a circuit, man. And, and out a pistol came and a couple of shots fired, fired Whoa. air and right at the end of the diet. He goes, now, I want you guys back here next week. <laughs> And I told my road manager, I said, put it in the damn calendar as soon as you can so we can get out of here. <laughs> All right. It's a well-known fact that country music is pretty much storytelling, okay? And, of course, the joke is is if you play the record backwards, the poor guy gets all the stuff back. You know, that was always the joke that we used to hear on the, the, the DJs would say that. But now... I was listening to a couple of your interviews, and there's two stories. One is a James Taylor story, which I want you to tell, and the other one is the story um, because you did a cover. You do the cover of "We Disagree" by Dave Mason. Dave Mason, by the way, has also been a guest on our radio show. So, and I've always liked his cover of "All Along the Watchtower." Okay, and of course, he was with Traffic originally, and and uh, and then he he branched out on his own and worked with another of unknown bands. But your story, one of the stories that you told was how you were playing i think a gig in daytona and there was this girl that you liked and then she didn't live she lived within 40 miles of where you were and then something about you had to get a car you were 16 and uh it took four quarts of oil to get to to see her and then you know and and i'm gonna let you tell the story because i I don't want to ruin it but i thought that was cute (laughs) well that's right you know um so i worked every summer you know uh on the you know plowing soybeans on the back of a tractor and and I had uh, gotten this job because I didn't have a car I was 16 and I found out man if you know if you if you want to get the girl man you had to have cars you know you can't you know all the all the girls my age was dating you know guys older than them because they had cars so we worked all summer saved up I saved up fifteen hundred dollars uh, one summer and. But I bought a five hundred dollar car and I put a thousand dollar eight track <laughs> stereo in it. <laughs> uh, eight track, got it. All right, keep going. Yep, yep. Forty miles to, to with my class ring to meet the Tupelo Honey Queen to ask her to be my girl. Right. I had to pull over four times and put oil in that car. It was like the oil wheel was running hot. Four <laughs> cans of oil to get there, and only to find out she. You know, she thought it was cute that I had the car, but, you know, she was already going to school with another, you know, Wakoa school. And so she, you know, she goes, you're cute. I, I mean, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. And I was embarrassed. And I'm on my way home and I pull out Dave Mason 
tape and it's the song we just disagree it's like my song my junior and senior year in high school uh and i'm like man i'm going i'm going to nashville this i'm this i know what i'm gonna do i'm i'm embarrassed you know this girl's gonna regret well anyway years later 10 15 years we're playing in pueblo colorado getting ready to kick off the song the station's playing the fire out of we just disagree we've had some number one songs i even thought about the tupelo honey queen until uh, that night, and then I looked down. There was a pair of hands just kind of waving in front of my microphone. You know, looked down, and and there she was, man. She had moved to Pueblo, Colorado, and uh, and she, 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 you know, I bent down. She goes, "I need to talk to you after the show," and I, and I said, "Hey, I love you, but I'm just not in love with you anymore." <laughs> <laughs> it was my payback. I've waited 15 years for that moment. <laughs> Hey, and they and they've written country songs about that one too, and and that was uh, Toby Keith. Uh, what about what was the name of that song? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. How do you like me now? Exactly. All right, now tell us the James Taylor story because actually, you know, I was researched a little bit, and and James Taylor and uh, two of your really your kind of like uh, influences musically was James Taylor and Myrtle Haggard. So let's hear the James Taylor story. Well, yeah, I was uh, you know growing up, uh, my dad had a band i sang traditional country music i was a baritone you know i couldn't really sing rock music after my voice changed i was a big haggard fan and i but i could sing along to james taylor music and when i got older and really saw how he played the guitar you know i became a huge fan and really my my guitar playing went up you know 20 percent from just listening and watching james taylor and his style and anyway after uh i got a you know country music record deal and everything and they were listing you know your influences and i listed james taylor was not really a, a country star but in his own lane he just had his own niche as a singer songwriter so i was a big fan i've seen him a couple of times in concert in nashville but now here we are in a tour bus on the west coast we're opening for the judge uh i've never really been anywhere other than nashville in my little hometown it's like my first year i'm touring and my bus driver knows everybody, you know, he kind of trains us, all us greenies who've never been anywhere, been on tour or anything, but we had a hit on the radio, and uh, so we're on tour, and we had a night off, and, and we're in uh, near San Diego with a Pacific Palace Bowl, I think it was, an outdoor amphitheater. James Taylor's supposed to be in concert, and it's sold out, and so I'm disappointed, and we're, we're in a bus, right? We're in the tour bus, my my uh, driver said, you know, we might could just pull around backstage. If we're in a bus, they might wave us right in, you know. <laughs> and so we, I was like, never thinking that would ever happen. And when, then, then it did happen. He drove around. They thought we were, we were in a tour bus, right? And they park us in his parking spot, his bus parking spot, right behind the stage. And I'm embarrassed as hell now. I'm, I'm Me and the band are on there, and we're going, man, what are we going to do? This is, like, really embarrassing. We were, you know, and luckily, my driver saw one of the tractor trailer drivers, and he knew him. And they knew he they'd done tours together. And so, I made my bus driver go, you know, kind of talk us out of this thing. And he, the guy thought it was pretty cool, and said, "Hey, look, James is not even on a bus; he's flying in on a jet. Of course he is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a big difference in James's career, my career, and so." Anyway, they couldn't have been nicer. But my bus driver told the road manager there, he says, man, we're just big fans. We, we was disappointed. It was sold out. They said, let Billy just stay parked right there. 
set up chairs on the side of the stage. We got to eat catering with James, and he could, it could have been cooler. It was just when you meet your one of your heroes, and it turns out like that. It's just you know, it was one of the great experiences of my my life to walk around stage and see his gear and listen to his how their stage volume was. The first thing I told my band. I said, you see how low these guys play? They're not blaring everything else. It's finesse. You know, we learned so much that day. But it was really cool to get to meet James Taylor. And uh, and I came back and recorded Steamroller Blues, one of his songs on my Fire in the Dark album, because I just love the way, the way he does that. So, yeah, big influence. Sorry for the long-winded story. but No, no, no. Great. Well, let me ask you a question. Did you, can't, did you get a chance to kind of, you know, jam with him a little bit? Uh, well, we didn't get to jam, but we were we were we were going to hook up with him uh, the night uh, the night before. No, the, yeah, after that show, we were supposed to go. We went to see Warren Zevon. In fact, Peter Asher, James Taylor's manager, wanted to manage me, and that was a, uh, it was a huge thing. And my head of my label was a little bit uh, he was not for it because I was a country. Star singer and and they thought there was going to be some confusion and i thought man this is james taylor's manager wants to man anyway they took us out to see warren zevon uh you know uh werewolves of london guy werewolves of london and we were thinking that james was supposed to come and we were going to get to jam with uh, him and warren zevon but james he, he didn't come that night and i don't blame him but but we got to hang out with peter asher and and we got to just have a great experience but that was one. That is one of my all-time, uh, you know, goals would be to get, sit down and, and play some uh, some James Taylor songs because I've studied his every little intricate, you know, finger style play, and it's just I've studied him so much. You know, it's just, he's so unique. Now you play um, guitar and you play banjo and the fiddle, <laughs> and. Uh, so yours and but I always see you with an acoustic. Do you ever play electric at all, or are you just mostly six and twelve string, and then the banjo, of course? Well, I I very little on the banjo and very little on the. I used to play more fiddle in the early days. Okay, uh, you know, it just as a when I was playing bars and, and clubs, and then once you get to Nashville, <laughs> and there's so many great banjo fiddle guitar players and i did i played electric guitar in the, some of the local bar bands that i was uh playing with and even in, when i got to nashville but man when you get to nashville you realize there's people that are like light years ahead of you on the <laughs> instruments and so you so you decide i better specialize in one because there's just so many great musicians so i just specialized in the acoustic guitar kind of being more of a rhythm you know, uh, player or self-accompanying kind of fingerstyle player, and uh, and there wasn't that many people doing that in Nashville, and I figured, well, you know, I I would be uh, it was really helpful as a songwriter too, you know, uh, just being able to play this that fingerstyle. There was a lot of guys writing melodies that they could write in the guitar. You know, it makes you keep your melodies real simple if you can play them on the guitar, the melody and the rhythm at the same time. You know, it kind of forces you to to write simple and and good melodies, simple melodies, uh, nothing fancy, but uh, it's kind of helped my songwriting really like that. Um, speaking of guitarists, do you ever come? Did you ever run across? I mean, talk about a really good guitarist. Roy Clark was really really good, and Glenn Campbell, another guy that was really really good, and of course Jim Stafford. Did you ever run across these guys at all? 
Oh yeah, man, I sure did. I I, I know Jim very well. Played uh, his theater there in Branson. Uh-huh. Um, I had a great night with uh, Glenn Campbell one night. It was the Academy of Country Music Awards. Um, Manuel had made me this coat. He was a famous, uh, you know, famous designer, and uh, he, he even worked with on some of the Elvis Presley uh, jumpsuits that Elvis used to wear. Uh, Manuel was part of that. Had him in the shop in Nashville. I had this cool Manuel jacket, and um, and it was a charity auction for the Academy of Country Music uh, the night before the, the award show. A lot of artists come to the charity, and I donated this coat to the charity, and Glenn Campbell bid on it, and we're kind of about the same chest. Anyway, he got it. And so um, the band that was playing there thought it would be really cool after he, he got the jacket to for Glenn and I to sing something together. And I, I had been listening to Jimmy Webb's uh, 10 easy pieces it was a jimmy webb wrote a lot of the big hits that glenn did and he, uh-huh. he performed them very different than glenn did like so for instance galveston the song galveston uh was slowed way down by jimmy webb and you could really hear the story this was actually a story about a soldier you know like in a foxhole you know dreaming about his girl back home and the way glenn did it it went by so fast i never really got that the, the essence of that story until I heard Jimmy Webb. Anyway, long story short was I asked Glenn if he, I said, I, I could play Galveston. I kind of do it the Jimmy Webb style. And Glenn just said, start it, take off. And so I just started playing Galveston very slow on the guitar and telling the story like Jimmy Webb did. And then Glenn jumped in and we got done, man. And he said, I've never heard it done like that. I said, well, that's, you know, that's Jimmy Webb's new that's off his new album. He and it's his kind of his version. He goes, man, I think I'm gonna start slowing that down and <laughs> and play it, you know, playing it that way because um, uh, which is huge. You know, Glenn Campbell was was a giant man, but just to get to share that moment with him uh, on stage and and uh, and having him, you know, have one of my jackets was just like cool as hell for me. Wow, that is an amazing story. Um, you mentioned Jimmy Webb now. He has written a lot of really, really fantastic songs, and, and a lot of them were sung by, um, obviously, Glenn Campbell. You're a songwriter as well. Are there it, a lot of guys, like, for example, you took some musical influences by James Taylor and Merle Haggard, and we'll get into Merle in a little bit. But so, songwriters, do songwriters influence other songwriters like yourself? I mean, did, and, and if so, who were some of them? Yeah, they they do, you know, um especially those songwriters that are having hits at the at the moment. You know, it's mm-hmm. this is not like one of those things you can just you know, you run off to college and you learn how to do it and then you can do it every year after year. It's kind of fashionable. You know, like uh the songwriters that have what we we call it they're turning the trough, you know, they're they're having the <laughs> they're having hits. And you, as you write with them, you realize some of the techniques that they're doing to really hook a listener into the song and get them singing along quickly and and getting them wanting to go buy it. You know, so you you wonder what techniques different writers use to do that. So, um, and songwriters that 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 will make you better, like Jimmy Webb, he had a thing where he would write in perfect rhymes. You know, and there was like there's only so many perfect rhymes. For, for 
for song for words, you know, and so it really forced the songwriter. If you ended up adopting that technique, okay, I'm going to only write in perfect rhyme. Well, it forces you to say something or use that rhyme in a really different way that that the listener doesn't really see it coming. You know, it kind of makes makes you work harder, I guess, in that uh, regard. And um, so Jimmy Webb was one of those, and I kind of started out. You know, I always tell some of my songwriter buddies who start now, because, you know, start out writing that way, and then you can always break the rules later. But, you know, uh, starting out writing, so that was a really hard thing um, to do, and I, I got that from, from Jimmy Webb. And, of course, his melodies, you know, are, are so incredibly hooky. And then, uh, you know, but then there's trends like nowadays that's uh, kind of like don't bore us. Get to the chorus. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. Okay, I got you. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I interviewed a musician a while back, and he used the term commercial, and and I said, and I didn't quite understand what he meant. And basically, what he said, he was saying is that, and you refer hit it a second ago when you're talking about the hook. In other words, there's always that sing along part of the song and that's the catchy part that everybody likes you know just like a guitarist you know i play a little guitar too i'm rhythm guitarist as well and uh so you know but every once in a while i go off on these little riffs i practice the riffs but i don't really know the whole song a few chords a few bars some riffs and i'm okay with that but that's the part that everybody remembers and that's what he considered the commercial part of a song the commercial side because that's what sells so Give me your take on that. Did I did I kind of hit it right yeah, there? Am I close? Did. That, yep. That's what we would call the chorus. That's that's why we kind of that funny slant saying is like, don't bore us with all this stuff. Just get to the part where we all can sing along, and you know we can hear it two times and we can sing along to it. You know, um, and those things, you know, were, uh, people kind of stumble, and it could be, uh, it could be the guitar. Up. You know, now, I mean, I, I love Hotel California. It's a great chorus to sing along to, but honestly, I love it when the solos are coming at the end of the, you know, end of that song. To me, that's one of my favorite hooks of that song. I got to wait to the whole end of the song to even get it, you know. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, Sweet Home Alabama. I mean, you play yeah. that, those three, those two chords for any audience across the world, where I played all over the world. <laughs> little riff. I mean, everybody knows what it is, and they leap out of their seat to the dance floor. And that's, that's the hook of that one, you know, that riff. Uh, everybody knows that. So, uh the, that's the thing that's fashionable as you write with people who are who are writing commercial music. That it's like a tri- it, it's very fashionable. You know, one day it's this is in style, one day it's out of style. You know, like nowadays, don't don't rhyme it, it at all if you can help it. You know, just make it everything sound as conversational and not so songwriting. You know, that's kind of the trend right now. Uh, you know, uh, make it more conversational and not so structured, you know. Uh, so it's very fashionable, and it's one of those things you have to learn and from peer to peer ha- kind of has to hand it down to you as uh, as you make your way, in, you know, in making the connections to get your career where you want to be. You really got to, you got to write commercial music or you're not going to be in business very long. 
for you, what come? Do you first come up with the lyrics, or is it that you sit there and you just pick up a like? You know, like I play electric guitar a little bit, okay, rhythm. But when I'm tinkering, I have this little cheap twenty-five dollar uh, used acoustic dreadnought that I picked up that's just got such a nice sound to it and some little mexican made guitar and it's cool as can be and you can just when you, I, you can just hear every note because it just it, it it resonates so well in the guitar so for, when you pick up a guitar and you play this to me just strumming a guitar is extremely inspirational so do you just kind of like tinker with the guitar and then a song pops in your head or do you first think of lyrics or how does it work for you it usually starts with with the whole the whole reason that I pick up guitar, you know. Anyway, is you know, it's kind of a a, a way to uh, sort of relax yourself. You know, if you mm-hmm. play a few yeah. chords, uh, you might even discover something, you know, in these three little chords that you know, a little run or something, and go, "Where's that been for twenty years? I've been playing those three chords, and all of a sudden, <laughs> a little riff will come out and go, well, that's been there all the time.'" And um, it depends on what, it, it's funny because what mood you're in, if you're in a kind of a melancholy mood, your hands just naturally go and gravitate to sort of a mellow kind of a, a melody or something that you write or, uh, you know, but you always start, for me, playing for for the, the original reason, which was just playing for the joy of music and just kind of soothing your heart. And if you're and a and it you know if you're in a good mood or if you're in a fun mood or if you've had a couple of cocktails and you pick up a guitar <laughs> you're gonna write a different kind of song you know yeah uh, it might be a little more rocking and uh, so it it always starts with the mood of what first comes out of those fingers and then almost tricking yourself into not writing but just keep playing for pleasure and then pretty soon you know you 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 play something you go wow that's that's really good I need to record that now i need to you know and then for me though i've got like hundreds and hundreds of voicemail ideas that i've i've recorded on my phone and i i generally will if i you know come up with something cool just sitting around playing uh it could be you know i was watching that tv show yellowstone uh, we watched the last episode i think last i felt i kept thinking about this this man walking with his grandson all through this beautiful territory wondering if it ever is going to be there again i'm kind of got melancholy you know and went out on my deck and had this really pretty little melody and and just kind of found a way to uh, write a song about about that but it's uh usually starts with just playing what you feel and uh and then tricking yourself into working it out into a song (laughs) the song somewhere in my broken heart that was your grammy award song right for 1992 (laughs) It was, uh, yeah, well, it was nominated for Grammy, but it won the Academy of Country Music okay. here at the Academy, but it did get nominated for Grammy. Uh, I lost to, actually, uh, I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, by Paul Simon. I mean, if you really? lose to somebody, that's not a bad one to lose to, but uh, anyway, that, but it did win the Academy of Country Music Song of the Year, which was a, which was a huge, huge deal uh for me among my peers you know that that i think more than anything that was having your peers vote for you on something like that is is really made me feel confident as a as a songwriter and i've always felt pretty inadequate as a songwriter because i was such a terrible student i never thought of myself as a writer but um but that's something i really have really tried to work on all my you know i always say i'm a songwriter first 
was that a turning point for you? Turning point, would you say that was, that award? Uh, yep, that was um, because I the guy I wrote it with had already won a, a Grammy. He uh, his name was Richard Lee, and he wrote "Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue" and he that's the oh, really? Gale song and uh-huh. and he showed me where the bar was. You know, I I throw out lines and and I think, oh, that was a good line, and it wouldn't even shake him you know he go well we might need to work a little bit harder <laughs> on that and uh and i thought oh hey this is a lot harder than i thought it was he just he was a tunesmith you know he he would just carve away and 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 really make it you know try to say as many things as he could say with his least amount of words and the most impact of a melody and i that's that was a changing point for me as to how hard it, it you know you have to work at it and then for sure, uh, that song becoming, it was even the National Songwriters Association Song of the Year, too, which just to this wow. day, you know, made, uh, made me really, uh, you know, feel like I wasn't just some, you know, handsome-faced pretty boy, you know, that was just trying to stick some makeup on and, a, you know, a, a hit record on, you know, made me feel like an artist, you know. So that song, Somewhere in My Broken Heart, and then the other one that, that's a really good song is The Greatest Man I Ever Knew. Now those, do they come from any kind of personal experiences, those songs? And well, is that no, kind of what influences I, a lot of your songwriting, personal experiences? Oh, well, yeah. The, now, uh, Somewhere in My Broken Heart, I wrote with Richard Lee, but I didn't, I recorded The Greatest Man I Never Knew, but I didn't write that. But Richard Lee, okay. the guy that I co-wrote somewhere, he did write that, and his did come from that, that, the idea of that greatest man I never knew. In fact, I was the first one to hear that song after Somewhere in My Broken Heart became a hit. Uh, he Richard played me that song, and I was pretty close to my dad, so I didn't feel like I was the right artist at that time to record it, and Reba McIntyre ended up having a number one song with it and everything, but I, um, years later, I ended up after I became a dad, uh, I, I recorded it. You could really relate to it. But the great story behind that, Richard was orphaned at the age of four, I think. His mom and dad got in a bad accident, lost them both. His dad wrote books for uh, about World War II, I think, during the Eisenhower uh, administration. And, he's, and these one day, Richard, years later, is a hit songwriter now in Nashville, and he has a few of his dad's books, and he happens to pull one of his dad's books down, and his dad's obituary fell out. And he never had seen it before. And he started reading all these incredible things that his dad had done that was in the obituary. And he said, wow, you know, what a great man, the greatest man I never knew. Wow, that's an interesting story. Um, but there is one song that I think, you did write, and it does have a personal connection, and that is Billy the Kid. Tell us about that one. <laughs> yeah, I could man. relate to that one myself. I still have my bicycle. <laughs> Keep going. I tell you, I can't believe how many girls have come up to me and have done the same thing. You know, I, I didn't think the song uh, might work because I thought it was too inside, too much of a little boy, you know, boy story kind of thing. You know, um, but yeah, I grew up in the Panhandle of Florida. And, you know, we didn't have really a whole lot to entertain us, you know, except our bicycles, you know, and a ball and a glove, a stick, maybe, you know, you'd be, that would be your, your rifle, you know, you'd play, uh-huh. you know, was it cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians and we were That's growing it. up with every politically incorrect game you 
probably think of. Today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <We did. laughs> but uh, that was our uh, our freedom, you know, was uh, was that bicycle, and we rode all over the little town there because on Saturdays uh, you couldn't play inside at my house because that was my mom's cleaning day. And the kids, you could not, you didn't track in and out of mom's house on Saturday. So we were stuck out there all day long, couldn't really come inside. And uh, that's where we learned to use our imagination. And I was, uh, you know, telling a buddy of mine, Paul Nelson, about it. I said, man, we terrorized the neighborhood. I said, man, we were like a, you know, a motorcycle gang. You know, we'd all <laughs> grab our bikes. and It was, you know, to this ballpark or to, you know, to this convenience store or where we were doing. And, uh. And he, and he said, well, man, it sounds like you're a little bit of an outlaw, you know? Yeah, I said, yeah, just kind of like, he's like, kind of like Billy the Kid. And then we were like, oh, wow, what a twist. You know, let's write it or, you know, for, let's write it towards that. And, uh, and so, you know, I miss those days, those innocent days of growing up and got to Nashville and saw a little kid getting kind of reprimanded by his parents because he was just being a kid, you know, and he, he, in a in a public place, and parents were kind of making him, you know, stifle down a little bit. And I was like, "Oh man, just let him be a kid," you know. And because they're going to be long, for those days are going to be gone, you know. And so that was kind of the direction uh, for that. And uh, and then it became such a you know popular song, the number one song in some charts, and became kind of my identity song. And uh, and I've always a weird thing. I, I look back over my career now, and I've sung a lot about this uh, innocence. You know, Billy the Kid, my first album was called Young Men. I have a song called Let Them Be Little and Mental yes. Boys. And why does this theme keep recurring, you know, in my music? And, you know, I've had time to look back now. I was raised by a World War II veteran, and, uh, you know, it's a dangerous world. And, those, you know, those dads, that generation of dads, wanted to grow their boys up quick, you know. And I always kind of rebelled against that. I think that's why that theme kind of runs through my music. we got a minute or two left. Um, Merle Haggard. So how much of an influence was he on you? Oh, my gosh. The, he was the biggest. He was the biggest influence. Um, I just loved his voice. And I, my voice was exactly in the same range as he is he and uh man i could sound just like him i could i can imitate merle haggard kind of like clint black could do a good merle haggard uh and when i first so i i've read his biography uh sing me back home uh i read it while i was uh in college on you know i was on a scholarship basketball scholarship but i was kind of stuck there at their campus on the weekend at this little small college and so i read read his book man and uh, and I just, just, he was, he was a, you know, he said things with his writing, you know, he was kind of, uh, you know, he was, he was kind of an activist a little bit with his, with his music, you know, but it was all stuff that he'd lived through. And so I was a big fan and, and I got to tour with him one year and it was a whole year, me and Clint Black and Merle Haggard. And I was, it'd been two months into the tour and I was scared to death to say anything to him because I was big big fan and i was the opening act so my my dressing room was a mile away from haggard's and clint black's you know <laughs> yeah, but this one, you know so i never got to really talk. so this one night and i'd go on we always came out to watch haggard's show because he went on after me and then clint 
black. And we this one night, man, he comes out on the side of the stage where I'm standing. I'm looking at the stage thinking he's coming out the other end, and I just hear this voice below me. Because I'm six foot four, and Haggers, he's, he's a short guy. But that big old voice, he goes, Bill, you know you tall people don't live as long as those short people do. <laughs> <laughs> First words he ever said to me. <laughs> and wow. Man, it was huge uh, just to spend that time with him get, get to you know he's very quiet but uh i knew i studied him so much and um it was just a he was a great artist but he was just a great he, he had a lot of he was just authentic i think that was the thing i learned most from be from haggard was try to be who you are and be authentic and don't apologize for it you know well no that's great words and that's it just be yourself well, it's reflected in your success. I mean, you are who you are, and you're doing a great job, and people love you, and you've got a great track record. And now you're back up in Florida, so you've kind of come home a little bit. Now, we got about a minute left, so what's next for uh, Billy Dean? Well, you know, you mentioned storytelling, and that's something that I continue to want to get better at. I have so much unreleased music. I have probably 60 or 70 masters that I've recorded. Wow that I've never released. And we are, uh, you know, me and my little camp, we're, we're determined to, you know, get a, 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 an album or two out every year. So that this music can at least come out and, uh, you know, continue to, uh, hopefully tour, uh, across the country where, where the 90s country music is really popular again. And so I'm out in the road playing a lot of the 90s music, but, uh, we're also doing a lot of, in the south here in the florida and around the coastal areas uh you know giving some of this new music uh, a lot of exposure and playing it out live because it's a lot of fun you know i felt like i've covered faith family and the flag you know in my in my music and this time i just wanted to have a you know margarita and sit on the beach and just have some one of my favorite songs on the album is called the laziest man alive and that's still (laughs) my my ultimate goal <laughs> if I could slow down long enough and be the laziest man alive, I think I heard Mark Twain quote that one time. His life ambition was be the thought it was the funniest thing in the world. So, uh, so that this album is really about you know getting everybody a chance to, especially folks that might be starting to think about retiring or thinking about slowing down. Man, my what I say to you: don't wait too long, man. And this album is like, do it now. You're never too young to slow down and enjoy the beach a little bit. Enjoy your, you know, let the rest of it's mine. That's the name of the album. That pretty much says it all. It says it to your kids, your grandkids. Look, you're on your own. The rest of it's mine. <laughs> super, super, super. Well, on that note, we are up against the clock. Billy, if people want to find out more about you, how do they go about doing it? Man, BillyDean.com is the best place to start. All the social uh, connections are there, the latest dates playing dates and stores and all that stuff there to keep up with it. We've got autographed CDs from the rest of its mind in the stores. So check it out there if you want a hard copy. And otherwise, look for us on the road, and we'd love to see you. Super. Well, Billy, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. It's been a real, real, real pleasure. Hope to meet you sometime. If you ever come down to the uh, Clearwater area, let me know. Ruth Eckert Hall, we'd love to hang out with you. And uh, maybe 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 uh, a backstage bash. So you never know, you know. But at any rate, Billy, <laughs> and I love you. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Anymore. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I want to thank my special guest, song singer songwriter, 
music guy, country guy, extraordinaire, and a, and a Florida boy. Thank you very much for hanging out with us here, Billy. All the best to you, okay? Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Have a great show, man. Okay, super. Anyway, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, where you can listen to some really cool interviews with some of the most fascinating and legendary man- names, 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 I got it right, names in motorsports, music, and, uh, you know, Billy was a real treat. Great song. I love that song, The uh, Saltwater Cowboy. And I like Billy the Kid. That is a cool little song because I can relate to that when I was a little kid. But uh, don't forget to check us out here every week. Tell your friends. Share all the good news. We'll see you at some of the car shows. Check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com. Follow us on social media. And uh, I guess we're out of here. All right. So take care, everybody. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Right on through to the other side. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.